This is imagination in action. It's a night of creative, uh, connective, compelling conversation with dynamic, with a dynamic mix of imaginators. We have Janet Hill and David uh, Rubenstein, and uh, these two are driving the action that will power our futures. Uh, we strive to be one of the most original, uh, engaging salons on Clubhouse and in the world. And imagination in action is the catalyst sparking thinking and insight uh, never captured before. Next week, we're going to do a show on comedy. We have uh, comedy writers for Ellen, uh, Raymond, and Corbin uh, talking about the comedy process. We have Peter Diamantis the week after that. We have Tal Zaks, the chief medical officer of Moderna, with Juan Enriquez, a futurist, and Jane Metcalf, the founder of Wired. Uh, we're going to do a hospitality and education show with the head strategist, former head strategist of Airbnb, and Barbara Waxman, uh, Chip Connolly and Barbara Waxman. We're setting up a show with uh, Mark Bittman on food. Uh, we're going to have some a finance show. We have Randall Lane from Forbes, the president of MasterCard, AJ, AJ and the president of Fidelity, um, Kathleen Murphy. Uh, we have a bunch of great shows uh, coming down the pike. So, uh, uh, Carolyn, can you play uh, something to kind of kick us off? It's officially uh, that time. Sure. I'm going to play a little, uh, a little thing from uh, Yankee Doodle Dandy by Henry Vuitton. introduce our two uh, speakers and then Allison and I will uh, start interviewing and then we'll get to the audience. Uh, so Janet Hill grew up an only child in New Orleans uh, when segregation was the law and white only signs were around. Uh, she was inspired by civil rights leader uh, Andrew Young who went on to be the mayor of Atlanta. Andy and she called themselves the country cousins. Uh, she went on 
to uh, Wellesley, her mom, who was a business leader for 64 years at least, uh, I think it had uh, encouraged her to do that. She was one of five African-Americans in a class uh, of uh, like over 400 at Wellesley, and Hillary Rodham Clinton was in that class. Uh, she went on and got a master's from U Chicago, same school that David got a master's from, uh, and she used her master's in math to uh, uh, take a job spying on Soviet subs. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if we'll get into that, but I uh, thought that would be interesting to share. She joined the Pentagon in a senior role, was Secretary of the Army, Clifford Alexander. And after uh, being in, in the Pentagon, she and Clifford formed a, a firm uh, and spent 30 years helping major corporations, especially around women and minorities and senior ranks. Uh, and she supported uh, First Lady Michelle Obama as she transitioned uh, to the White House. Um, her family, her husband says she has more energy than a Dallas Cowboy player. He should know. Uh, he uh, ran for 9,000 yards with the Cowboys and for 25 years helped coach them. Uh, and so he knows what a, a Dallas Cowboy looks like. Um, she is NFL royalty when Janet and her husband Calvin couldn't decide on the name for their newborn. Roger Staubach suggested Grant, and there you go. In terms of um, service, uh, Janet's on 12 corporate boards, 15 nonprofit boards, and three university boards, and three mutually with David. In terms of sports, she attends every Cowboys game uh, she can, and she's a big fan of the French national soccer team, and she has plans to go to Qatar uh, in 2022 to see the World Cup. I think she wants to ask David about, about traveling there. Uh, and she follows the U.S. soccer team, and she took her 13-year-old granddaughter and Grant uh, to see the women uh, on the world stage. And uh, her husband's a Hall of Famer, her son's a Hall of Famer, and she's a Hall of Famer. Uh, so proud to have Janet. And then David, uh, I want to introduce him, only child growing up in Baltimore, 800-square-foot uh, apartment. Uh, his grand My grandfather grew up near where he grew up, actually, in the Hebrew Orphans Asylum, uh, so I feel a connection there. Um, David's dad was a Marine in the Pacific during World War II. He didn't finish high school, neither did his mom. Uh, his dad was a mailman. Uh, and I heard David say uh, his top salary, his dad, was 7000 a year. Kind of tells you about the, the times. Uh, when David was in sixth grade, he heard an inaugural address that really shaped him and moved him. Uh, we'll come back to that, uh, the John F. Kennedy uh, uh, inaugural. Uh, in college, he went off to college at 16. He applied to Duke, writing a handwritten application. He was part of uh, Duke University, uh, and uh, uh, he was one of the 5% Jewish quota then, uh, which has long since been abandoned, but it also says something about the times, and he only had 12 African Americans in his class. Uh, in terms of work, he went to uh, law school, and after law school worked at Paul Weiss, where he met 15 years after he heard the inauguration, um, Ted Sorensen, and Ted Sorensen helped connect him with a presidential campaign that one thing led to another. He ended up meeting uh, Jimmy Carter and ended up serving four years in the Carter administration. And at the age of 37, he had anxiety that if he didn't do a startup, he might be too late. And he started a little operation that became a juggernaut, uh, the Carlisle Group, uh, which is wildly successful. Um, and uh, he and, and Janet share uh, uh, a role on the board there. Uh, or they, they don't share a role. They're both on the board there together. Uh, he gives back in creative ways. If you like the pandas at the National Zoo, he helped with that. Uh, he's purchased, I think, multiple declarations of independence and the Emancipation Proclamation and the Magna Carta and, and distribute them throughout the land so people can appreciate it. After an earthquake, uh, the the 555-foot damaged Washington Monument, he jumped in to help restore it, and he climbed on the outside scaffolding to the top 
and uh, world-renowned Whistler played some music up there, and I think he even wrote his initials on top. I wonder if that's uh, graffiti uh, in a federal uh, monument. Um, but uh, we're going to try to reenact that moment uh, with the Whistler uh, later tonight. Um, and uh, I have three really quick stories. I went and heard a speech at the Aspen Institute, and I was late to uh, see who was giving it. I was just in the back, and I was just mesmerized how uh, thoroughly knowledgeable this person was, and it was David giving a talk on Lincoln. Um, I also went to a Harvard event at the World Economic Forum, and I was expecting the Harvard president, and David got up at the podium, and I was wondering if maybe uh, you know, David was the chair of the board of Duke. I didn't know he had a Harvard connection. I wondered if Duke and Harvard merged and David got the top spot. Uh, and then my last story is I went to the NCAA lacrosse championships and I was on the sideline taking, uh, photographs as, as I think all the Yale alumni were cheering, uh, for Yale over Duke. And there David was on the sideline, uh, cheering for Duke. Um, he's interviewed, uh, so many people. People would, uh, spend a lifetime waiting to interview people like Bush, Clinton, Gates, and Bezos. He interviewed them in pairs. I think it says something about the demand that people have to, uh, be in his, uh, his presence. Um, I know if the Pope and Bruce Springsteen are listening to tonight's show, he hasn't interviewed you, and I, I think, uh, that would be a great interview. Uh, and in closing, Alex Baldwin passed, uh, uh, the uh, Tom Clancy character to Harrison Ford. I think Nicolas Cage would do well passing the National Treasure character uh, in movies to um, to, to David. Uh, and I also think um, uh, David is a modern-day Clark Kent, and you guys are going to get to know him uh, tonight. And uh, my first uh, – so that, that's who our, 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 our guests are. Um, I'm going to do the first question, and Allison and I will alternate until we get to the audience. And my first question is, David, you grew up an only child in the Jewish section of Baltimore. Your father worked uh, for the U.S. Postal Service. Your mom was a homemaker. Janet, you grew up an only child in segregated New Orleans, and your father and mother ran a dental lab business. Uh, what do each of you remember from your childhood, and what values uh, did, you, did your upbringing help to cement in you? Let Janet go first. Yeah, thank you, David. Uh, thank you very much, John. Um, yes, I grew up in New Orleans, an only child. I think I learned uh, generosity of spirit. It was a segregated environment, but my parents did everything they could for me. They also tried to emphasize striving for excellence. It wasn't even whether you were excellent, but whether you were trying to be excellent. Uh, a very hard concept to pass on to the next generation, but I've tried to do that and the next generation after that. So I was very lucky to have them. My mother, who outlived my father, uh, worked in that dental laboratory for 64 years. So while I know very, very successful business people such as David and a lot of others, I don't know anybody as successful as she is or was. So in my own case, I um, grew up, with, as you heard, modest means. But, you know, when you grow up in modest economic means, it's not... You don't sit around and, and go, woe is me. You basically accept the situation you find yourself in and try to make the best of it. And so I didn't mope around and say, wow, my friends have more money than I do or my friends have more things than I do. You just do what you can with what you have. And I got lucky in many different ways. And, and uh, you know, it turned out reasonably well for me. But um, I, I, I think in the end, the, my parents deserve a lot of the credit because in the end, they put all their energies into me. I was their only child. And while they weren't well educated or by today's standards where everybody has college degrees and graduate degrees, uh, they did have a lot of, uh, street smarts and they, 
they try to get uh, me to do something more than they had done with their lives, and, and so I give a lot of credit uh, to them for you know whatever I turn out to be. Obviously, both of you not only have attended top schools, but also have helped shape them, serving on so many different boards of universities as trustees. So I'd love to understand a bit more because obviously education is a bit embattled at the moment. What did each of you get from your education and what do you think universities today need to deliver to their students? And specifically, if you could create the new Rubenstein Hill University, what would be the required curriculum? Well, first of all, everybody has to take mathematics. So let's just start there. Um, um, you know, listen, what can I say? Uh, I know that David is a scholar in history, a subject that I don't know a great deal about. If he has not written one, but now two books, which caused me to know a little bit more. more. Um then uh, I would be uh, as I would be in a, a bad state, if you will. I will say my husband and son both majored in history, and so I do get a little bit from them. But I think both history, the humanities, and and the hard sciences are very important at the university level, and and some kind of study in analytical studies. In, in my view. Um Janet and I have both served on the Duke board together for many years, and, mm -hmm. and um, you know the, the appeal of serving on a university board is that you get to see a, a microcosm of society. You're seeing the young people who are going to graduate and eventually become leaders in society. You're seeing professors who are doing great work teaching, but also doing great research. And it's a great way, I think, to give back to the country, even if you did not go to that university. Janet, uh, while her son went to Duke, <laughs> Janet uh, did not attend Duke University. She went to Wellesley, but she, I think, served on the board, uh, Janet, for, what, 15 years or 16 years? Yes, I served an extra long term. I like to say that the alum served 12 years, but the parents served 15. So she did a <laughs> terrific job. And why did she want to do that? Well, of course, her son had gone there, but I think she was a way of giving back to... Uh, uh, a very good university, and in my own case, I've been on four university boards, Hopkins, Harvard, Chicago, and Duke, and to me, it's a way of giving back to society because I think one of the greatest treasures that we have in this country is our higher education system. For all of its flaws, it's the envy of the world, and one of the ways I think we can make our country better and stronger, and again, the envy of the world, is to have the best university system in the world, so that's one of the reasons why I do it. As to what students should do, I think what students should do in college is and universities, but is major in something that they're interested in, not what they think is going to get them the best job. And that's because if you major in something or study something you're interested in, you're more likely to do better. Don't worry about your job because um, as somebody that's hired a lot of people out of college, I'm looking for people that know how to think, that know how to reason, that know how to long to get how to get along with other people, that know how to. Um, do things more than just a particular job. And so I don't really view um, our, uh, colleges or universities as training grounds for jobs, but really training grounds for life where you hopefully will emerge with a love of reading, a love of exercising your brain all the time, learning more and more. And, you know, the specific things you need for your, your job, you can learn that on the job. And I don't think you need to go to college to learn something specifically to help you get a job though I recognize that it's a minority view probably to some extent these days. 
Well, I think you just came up, David, with a tagline for the Rubenstein Hill University uh, training ground for life. I think I think you might uh, get some clubhouse attendees. I want to just ask one follow-up, given that you both think so much about education, and as you say, uh, U.S. education is the envy of the world. What do you make out of the political correctness debate each um, that's happening at universities today? So as Princeton sort of renames the Woodrow Wilson School and uh, Harvard Law School changes their logo, I mean, how do you guys make sense of that, and do you think that is universities on the cutting edge? Do you think any of that is misplaced? They're, they're individuals who are younger than David and myself, and I'm older than David. So let me say that um, there are individuals who are offended uh, by uh, Wilson's name uh, at, at Princeton. And I'm talking about Princetonians, not people outside of that university's uh, purview. And so I think the view of the world, but the view also of history, is different for individuals who were born in the 60s or the 50s than individuals who were born in, I'm going to say, 1995. I'm surrounded by lots of people who were born in the 90s. And, um, and, and their view of the world is their view of the world. I respect that. And uh, while it might not be something I would move for if I were uh, a Princetonian, uh, I think others have a right to um, ask that there be more clarity about who they're honoring. I would say that uh, when our country was set up, it was in set up with wonderful rhetoric. Uh, everybody is supposed to be equal. We hold these truths to be self-evident. But obviously the rhetoric was rhetoric in many ways because it really meant all white Christian men are to be treated equal. Not uh, African Americans, not people who are Jewish. Uh, and, and not women, really, because they had no rights either legally. So we have basically spent 230 years trying to live up to the rhetoric in the Declaration of Independence. And we have done a reasonable job in some areas, but it's a long way to go. And so sometimes when trends start, like the, the era of political correctness, it can go a little further than maybe it should go. But in, I think that there's some corrections that have to be made in our history and people should understand that you can't honor appropriately uh, certain people who have done some things that are not only antithetical to the times they lived in, but certainly antithetical now. And um, I would just say that uh, I, I don't can't support everything that goes on in, in the era of political correctness, but I do think people should be much more sensitive to the fact that uh, we haven't quite lived up to the uh, goals of the Declaration of Independence or the goals of uh, the Constitution. Great. Well, David, you have a book coming out in September on the American experiment, which includes interviews exploring the diverse makeup of our country's DNA that includes interviews with Pulitzer Prize-winning historians, diplomats, music legends, sports giants, and many more. I'd love to hear what you learned in pulling this book together on what people think does make this country special, and what do each of you feel are the qualities and beliefs that make America special and hopefully will get us through this divisive time? Well, the American experience, experience and experiment was basically this. Um, people came together, and as, um, as they said at the time, Benjamin Franklin said when he was asked, 
what he's given the American people, what the founding fathers gave. He said, a republic, if you can keep it. The truth is, uh, it was an experiment, and nothing like that had ever happened before. A government created out of whole cloth to replace the failed Articles of Confederation government, which replaced the, the colonies that didn't really work so well either. Um, we had wonderful rhetoric, as I mentioned earlier, in our founding documents, but we didn't really live up to it. And so, basically, our country has been trying to live up to this rhetoric for all these many uh, hundreds of years, and with some great successes and some failures that still exist. Um, what I, I try to say in the book is that, uh, like, if you analogize, uh, well, two analogies I'd like people to think about. The fact that there is life on Earth is an incredible um, um, and serendipitous kind of event. If the Earth was formed, you know, five billion years ago, and it was, you know, a hundred million miles closer to, the, let's say, or let's say, fifty million miles or thirty million miles closer to the sun, or thirty or forty million miles further from the sun, we probably wouldn't have life. So it happened in a very um, unusual way. Everything came together. It was the right uh, location from the sun, and other things happened. The same thing is true of our body politic. Had we not had certain things happen, the American experiment wouldn't have come together. And my view is that the things that made our body politic work are a number of genes, as I call them. And the genes would be the belief in the rule of law. The, 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 the uh, a gene would be in the re- belief in equality the belief in the importance of voting, and so forth. So things that I think are essential to our democracy and our, our ability to, to move forward, it's like another one would be the American dream. People believe in the American dream. You can rise up from modest circumstances and so forth. These genes have come together and created an incredible country, I think the envy of the world, but we have our flaws, as we all know, and I do think that it's important that we uh, recognize we need to keep working on our flaws, but I do think the country has become the envy of the world and still remains the envy of the world. More people want to immigrate to this country and do immigrate to this country than any other country in the world. Very few people emigrate from this country, uh, and I think uh, when that, that tells you everything. How many people are immigrating into Russia, uh, for example, or how many people are immigrating into any other country? Very few, relatively speaking. People really want to come here because we have built an incredible country, even with its flaws and its inequalities. It's still a, a place that I think people envy. Great. Um, I'm just looking at the room. I see Emily is here, who uh, works at the Salk Institute, is one of the world experts on the circadian rhythm. I know later today she wants to ask you guys, as two high achievers, how do you pace yourself? I see Elena is uh, here from Brazil. I think you have like 40,000 followers and, and a really thoughtful person. Love to uh, see if you have a question. I see William Hoffman, the number two at the World Economic Forum. I see Esther Dyson. I see Orcus who was a topper. For those of you who don't know what a topper is, he was the number one student at IIT Delhi's, uh, a leading expert on AI. Um, I see Jim and Carolyn, two 80-year-olds who uh, have seen it all, and I'm excited to have them ask a question. I see uh, Bennett and Sydney, two Gen Z. Uh, uh, I'm excited to have uh, a young uh, generation ask a question. I see Jeff Weber, who uh, is very active in philanthropy, the chair of the New Profit Board. So when we open this up, we're going to get some great uh, uh, questions from uh, some really uh, thoughtful people. Um, so my next question to both of you is you both served at high levels in the federal government, and do you think government service offers an important rite of passage and what did this time teach each of you and what most surprised you about your time in government? And then do you think we do enough today to make uh, government service attractive in the 21st century? Um, I get the feeling uh, a generation or two ago it was a real point of pride to, to go into government. 
and I, I worry that, uh, um, you know, uh, that, that isn't uh, these days. And, and what are your thoughts on, on this topic? Well, uh, again, I didn't have as high level a position as David did in the White House, but we both worked for uh, President Carter. I can say that it was a distinct privilege for me to work in the Pentagon for him and for his Secretary of the Army. Uh, I learned a lot, uh, but I contributed a lot also over four years. Uh, I think it is a, you know, I, I think we should encourage young people, especially uh, smart young people, to um, spend some time in government service, either selected as I was and David was, or elected. Um, otherwise, I'm, to be blunt, if we don't do that, then we are stuck with what we have. I don't mean what we have at this moment, but certainly what we have had. So we have been through periods where we have not had the best people in positions of authority. And this has hurt all Americans. So that said, uh, I'm speaking now as a taxpayer. <laughs> I'm all about encouraging smart young people to consider government service. I think that uh, when government service is uh, talked about, it should be talked about a little differently than it used to be. It used to be that you, if you wanted to serve your country, you could do so in a military way where you potentially uh, could give up your life and pass, pay what Lincoln called the last full measure of devotion. Or you could work in the civilian way and many, obviously different kinds of sacrifices. Both are very noble undertakings, but you don't have to work in the government, military and or civilian side, in order to give back to your country. We have now developed in the last 50 years or so enormous amount of uh, uh, non-government organizations that are doing wonderful things where you can do public service while not technically being in government. So my answer is try to do something in public service. If it can be in the government, fine. Military or civilian, fine. Both is fine. But also, if you, for whatever reason, you don't have the opportunity or you want to not work in the government, you can do so in a non-government uh, agency that or organization that does a lot of good things. And I think there's reasons to do this. One, I think it's a way to give back to your country. Two, I think you learn a lot from it. It'll make you a better person later on. And three, I think that it's a way to, um, I, I think, have... Um, a sense of fulfillment that you will look back on the rest of your life and say, yes, I did give something to my country, and now I feel that I, I, uh, I'm more of a, a complete person because I did something for the organization, the country that made it possible for me to, to, to have a, a reasonably good life. I have to admit, David, I love that answer because my brother worked at the Kennedy School on the topic of social capital with uh, Putnam for many years, and you know, we all feel like you should actually measure the social capital of a country because whether it's in nonprofits or public service, uh, it really makes a difference to how how pleasant a country is to live in and how united it is. So, next question to 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 both of you has to do with the state of capitalism. Uh, what are your insights on some of the events that seem to be taking place in today's capital markets? Do you view these as fads or signs of potential flaws? Do you get concerned about the growing economic divides uh, where U.S. billionaires add more than one trillion in wealth during the pandemic? Uh, some young people, some in, in this room, uh, are questioning whether capitalism is still about producing fundamental goods and services or whether money making today 
is more about uh, uh, market speculation and manipulation. Uh, I'm a venture capitalist. I love uh, backing uh, founders, uh, but but I do uh, I do wonder uh, you know about this. Um, and and what if any shifts do you think institutions need to make to govern the volatility in today's markets? And what do you see in today's capital markets that concerns uh, both of you? Wow. I'm going to let David take this. Uh, Winston Churchill famously said, democracy is the worst form of government except every other one. He might well have said, uh, capitalism is the worst economic construct except every other one. Capitalism has its flaws for sure. And one of the great flaws it has is that it does produce a fair amount of in- in economic inequality, and we're seeing that now in the United States among other places. But I do think it has created more wealth and therefore more good than any other economic system that I'm aware of. Clearly, what's happened in our country is as wealthier people are becoming more and more common, uh, those left behind are falling further and further behind. And COVID uh, drove that even um, more so to be the case. You, called, you had what I called a COVID crater where people that didn't have access to broadband that couldn't uh, keep their jobs because their jobs were not ones were in great demand during COVID, um, they fell further and further behind. And it's going to take a lot more time than we ever dreamed to get them back to just where they were before, let alone back to a a reasonable position. So capitalism has its challenges. There's no doubt that enormous amount of money is being created today in the venture capital world, the technology world. And I hope that a lot of those people that are making that money uh, will give it back relatively soon to society. The um, tradition of philanthropy is one that our country has uh, been a leader in throughout much of our country's history, but very often philanthropy began when people were in their 60s or 70s or retired, and then they were starting to think about giving back. Fortunately, a lot of younger people are making a fair amount of money, and they are giving back at a relatively early age. And I would say in my own case, the greatest pleasures of my life are taking the money that I've made and giving it back to other causes. It's created far greater happiness for me than anything else um, that I've done professionally. And so I, I encourage others to, to do that as well. And I just remind people that philanthropy is a, derived from an ancient Greek word that means loving humanity. It doesn't mean just writing checks. And you can love humanity and be a philanthropist, in my view, by giving your most valuable thing, your time. And that is very, very valuable as well. So if you don't have money, give your time, your energy, your ideas, and give back to society. And don't wait until you're 60 or 70 or 80 to do it, but do it now. Make it a regular part of your life. I'd like to um, introduce Chris Ullman as a world-class uh, whistler, and he's won championships, and he and uh, uh, David uh, have done a number of things where they celebrate uh, history and, and moments uh, uh, where Chris gets to uh, play some uh, some whistling. So, uh, Chris, uh, would you do a musical interlude um, uh, for this uh, nice moment? Yes, thank you, John, and uh, thanks to David and Janet for a really interesting conversation. Uh, so this is a, a wonderful jazz tune called uh, Take the A-Train by uh, Billy Strayhorn and the great Duke Ellington.
Wow. Thank you, Chris. We've come through a super intense time as a nation, and it seems as if we've never been more divided. Uh, Henry Brady, who's the dean of the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley, says that not only is he worried, but he thinks the republic is as frayed as it's ever been in any period since just before, during, and after the Civil War. I don't know if you agree with that, but I would really appreciate hearing from two people as thoughtful as the two of you. What do you think are some of the key factors that brought us to this level of partisanship and division? And most importantly, what are some of the interventions that you think are most important if we are to build back our ability to come together as one nation? Well. If I knew the answer to that, I would have been the Iowa caucuses and I would have gone to New Hampshire and South Carolina. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, there's no doubt that uh, throughout most of history, people will always say, this is the worst of times, things are falling apart, and it's, it's worse than it ever was. And it's generally not the case. You know, it's always, um, there's always bad times before. But I would have to admit, it's not very pleasant right now in Washington, D.C., because the Congress is dysfunctional. It can't pass anything. It can't get anything done. It's too political. And when I worked in the Capitol, Capitol Hill briefly, um, you used to have bipartisanship uh, efforts, and Republicans and Democrats walk together, work together. Why is that not the case now? Well, I think the three reasons. One, I think that uh, the campaign financing uh, laws don't really exist, so there's no limit to how much money members can raise, and therefore they spend enormous amounts of their time raising money. And they're, therefore, they're very beholden to the people that give them money, uh, and that's a big factor. And they don't need the money so much because most incumbents get reelected, but they, they use it to kind of get leadership positions because you can give to other members, and also you can retire with the money, and you can use it for other political purposes, even if you have leftover money. So there's a big incentive to raise a lot of money, uh, and that's a sad thing. Uh, social media, for all of its wonderful uh, features, has made everything in Washington uh, open to everybody's scrutiny, and therefore members are afraid of doing anything that will be on social media and criticize, criticizing them. So social media has made it m much more difficult than before to have, I think, the government come together. And also I think that the, the stakes are, 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 are the, the country is divided very much so, and therefore Washington's divided. In other words, Washington reflects the country, and the country is pretty divided right now, it's not just members of Congress raising too much money or they're too afraid of social media. People in the country have very, very um, different views on things, and we really have become a tale of two cities or a country of uh, uh, two natures. You're, you're either red or you're blue, and there's not a lot in between. It's a sad situation. I wish it would get better, but I, I think you're going to need a national uh, tragic event of some type to force people to come together for a brief period of time. I don't want such an event to happen, but right now, short of some shocking event, I think we're kind of drifting towards uh, more of what we already see. To a little bit about race relations, because uh, both of you were born at times where segregation was the law. We've come through an incredibly tumultuous year where many Americans woke up to racial divides in policing, in COVID exposure, in employment, among many other areas. I would love to hear from both of you whether you think the current racial reckoning is real, um, how much progress you think we've made in each of your lifetimes on racial inequity, uh, what are the areas where you think we have the most work to do, and what do you think Americans do and don't get about racial relations? Well, one thing I think that uh, that 
some some people don't get, and, and this includes many black people, that, uh, listen, in 1965, when I was a senior in high school, and I left New Orleans and went 2,000 miles away to Boston to college, uh, I had never met anybody white. And one of the first people I met was Hillary Rodham. Uh, she was very nice to me. And I tried to bail out of Wellesley after three days. But my mother, back in New Orleans, put her foot down and basically said, no, you are not coming home. No, you are not running away from school. And I was not resourceful enough to figure out how to live on my own, I guess, in Boston at 18. So I toughed it out. None of the wonderful things that have happened to me would have happened if I had left. So that's my that that was the seminal moment for me, if you will. But the other important moment was also in 1965 when the Civil Rights Bill was passed and segregation, which was the law in certain places such as New Orleans, ended. And there was uh, affirmative action and open accommodations. So if I were to walk into, I don't know, Starbucks um, and buy coffee, that is not a place I could have walked into and bought coffee in 1964. So I see the last 60 years or 70 years as that was probably the most important thing that happened. A lot of young people who, as I said, I'm surrounded by people uh, who, who were born in the 90s, they don't even know that unless they read their history books. And they don't realize that there are many of us walking around who lived through that. Now, that doesn't mean we've reached nirvana because we have not. And I think the situation with the police, which gives a bad name to police, uh, most police are good. They're good police, men and women. And there are some rogue police. Uh, the shooting of black men and not just shoot them once, but let me go ahead and put 12 bullets in them. Uh, and the stop was, the reason they'd stopped them is because they had a tail laid out. Something is not defensible here. The um, most amazing thing that uh, has ever been created by God or evolution, in my view, is the human brain. An incredible uh, muscle and organ. And, but it has had its defects, and one of its defects is this. Although the human brain can create uh, uh, Mozart uh, sonatas or Beethoven symphonies or Picasso works of art or whatever you might want to see that the human brain has done, it's incredible, Shakespeare plays, it has a defect, and the defect is it says, if you are different than me, I don't like you. And therefore, racism arises not just in the United States but all over the world. Race, it's, there are very few countries where two different races get along swimmingly as if there is no racial distinction. The United States is worse than many other countries because we still have the residue of the sin of, of, of slavery. We had slavery in this country for several hundred years, and we have the residue of it now, which is that many people that are descendants of slaves still have not achieved equality uh, compared to whites who may have lived in this country a relatively short period of time. Let me just wrap up. Welcome, everyone, to Imagination Action. Uh, this is where we have people role model how they use their imagination and put it in action and uh, and help uh, you know think about what are the opportunities and challenges in our times. Uh, next week's show, uh, we're having the comedy writers, the head comedy writers for Ellen, uh, for uh, Raymond, Everyone Loves Raymond, and Corbin. 
the week after that, we have Peter Diamantes. The week after that, we have Tal Zacks, the chief medical officer for uh, Moderna, and Juan Enriquez and Jane Metcalf, the founder of Wired Magazine. We then are going to have Chip Connolly, who was a strategic advisor for 12 years for Airbnb, uh, and Bar- Barbara Waxman, and they're going to talk about uh, middle age and how it's expanding and hospitality. Uh, we also have Mark Bittman, uh, the food writer for the New York Times. He just came out with a book, uh, Animal Vegetable Junk. Uh, we're also going to have Randall Lane from Forbes, who created the uh, 30 Under 30 and is the, um, uh, the chief content officer. And we're going to have the president of MasterCard and the president of Fidelity. Mm. We're also going to have a show with Naomi and Sarah, two uh, female directors in Hollywood, one African-American, talking about the challenges and the Me Too movement. And we're also going to have uh, David uh, Senge, uh, who is uh, in the minister's cabinet of Sierra Leone, uh, coming in from Africa. And um, we're going to have the head of a zoo. We have a lot of great shows. Daniela Roos that, that has 1,300 grad students uh, at MIT running the uh, CSAIL, Computer Science, Artificial Intelligence, and Robot Lab. So every Tuesday, 6 to, 6 to uh, 8 p.m., uh, tune in and, and, and uh, have your imagination stretched and hear about action. So, Max, can you uh, play something for, like, 90 seconds? Sure. Thank you, John. And thank you, Janet and David. Um, I would like to play <clears throat> a tune written by the great American ragtime composer from New Orleans, Scott Joplin. This is one of his lesser-known pieces, but nonetheless, I think it's one that is very celebratory and will help us all march on out of here after a wonderful, uh, insightful conversation. This is called The Sycamore. Mm-hmm. 